I spend a decent amount of time on social media, so I see how people talk about race whenever issues of race in this country arise. And what's troubling to note is that in too many of these uh, conversations, productive dialogue can't be had because so much energy is devoted to arguing about what racism even is. And, you know, two cannot walk together except they be agreed. Amos 3.3. Amen? So if we're going to fight against racism, we should probably know what it is and what it looks like. It would also be helpful to know what the scriptures have to say about it, to reinforce correct ideas about how we treat those who are different from us. And, you know, once we have that much, then we can have productive dialogue about how to address racism. A quick heads up as we start this episode, you know, it is one last day of 2021. Let's put it behind us. Uh, And why not start off a New Year's resolution by doing one before midnight? I know all year long you've said, you know what, I want to be a Patreon saint of the Cultural Hall, and you just haven't done it. Well, your chance is today. You can save 10% if you do it before midnight on the 31st of December, 2021. Once it's done past that, it's, it's too late. You have to wait till next year to do the uh, saving 10% thing. You can always become a Patreon saint. I tell you about it more in the episode, so I don't want to wax on. But if you have listened to this episode and it's still before the midnight stroke of December 31st, 2021, that's a weird way of saying that, please become a Patreon saint. Save yourself 10% and join us so you can be a part of that secret but not sacred group and also have access to all the older episodes. Grateful for his willingness to share this episode of The Cultural Hall. It's time for another episode of The Cultural Hall, and I am excited to have this episode occur. Uh, I have James Jones, James C. Jones, to be precise, uh, here. You might know him as the co-host of the podcast Beyond the Block. Uh, he also uh, a, a very talented a cappella performer. Uh, he is studying at the Union Theological Seminary, where he's currently studying Black Liberation Theology, which I'll be completely transparent. I'm not sure I understand exactly what that is. Excited to know about that. You can see him featured in Dialogue, the Journal of Mormon Thought, the Salt Lake Tribune, KUER, by Common Consent, and what was going to be Deseret Book, and that's part of why we have him here as part of this conversation. Welcome, James. Thank you so much for having me, Richie. Now, before we get into the newsworthiness, and that's air quotes for people that can't (laughs) see uh, this, I would just be curious to know a little bit about you. Where do you come from? Uh, Are you a member of the church? All of the, you know, how you came to... Let's start at the very beginning. Your mother and father loved each other very much, and then you were conceived. You pick it up from there. Yeah. um, Answering the question as to where I'm from exactly is always a little bit of a loaded question, simply because I am a a military brat. Uh, Both my parents were in the military. Mama served eight years in the Army. Dad served four in the Air Force, and then another 20-something in uh, in the Army. And um, so we just did a lot of moving around. I was born into in Tacoma, well, more specifically, Fort Lewis, Washington. I've lived in California. I've lived in Texas. I've lived in North Carolina. I lived in Northeastern Pennsylvania, where I graduated from high school. And then I went to BYU for, uh, you know, for my undergrad, graduated with my degree in psychology. And then shortly after that, I moved to uh, Boston to, you know, pursue acapella music. Like that was literally 
something that kind of happened on a whim. I've always loved music, but I never planned on making it my career by any means. Mm -hmm. I planned on, I actually planned on, uh, you know, going further and pursuing a master's in educational leadership and policy. That was my academic passion at that particular time. I wanted to, you know, fix the educational system and all that stuff. Sure. But, um, you know, I just had a rough go in academia, just everything that I wanted to do just like shut me down really hard in terms of whether or not I could do it. I tried working in the prisons, couldn't do it. Um, Why not? Why couldn't you work in a prison? I mean, I just didn't. I mean, they just didn't hire me. Like my internship. Okay. Okay. I was going to have an internship at the prison. So like I uh, couldn't work there. I tried to, I mean, I worked as a substitute teacher for a while and that was actually pretty rewarding. I enjoyed that. Um, and uh, I tried to, you know, get the necessary experience. I applied to grad school fresh out of fresh out of college. I didn't get in. I uh, tried to be part of Teach for America twice and they rejected me twice. And that was just a huge blow to my to my ego. And I was like, OK, academia is clearly not for me. Let me actually see if I can make music work. And then within six months, I had a paid gig and I did that for about six years in uh, Boston and I was like, I don't want to be on the road 200 and some days out of the year. So, like, let me figure out a way to, like, transition into something, you know, a little less physically demanding. <laughs> and uh, that's how I discovered or came into voiceover work. The pandemic also, quote unquote, helped with that. Yeah, yeah. You know, just. And then after I started to be on the block, um, you know, with my podcast partner, Derek, sometimes I affectionately call him my, uh, my mission companion. Uh-huh. Um, you know, that's kind of when this call to go back to school and to just become a better theologian started coming about just the work wasn't slowing down. You know what I'm saying? Beyond the block just was a launch pad to a lot of different things in terms of, um, you know, opportunities to speak, on centering marginalized people in Mormonism. Um, you know, I've written for those publications that you mentioned, but I've also spoken at many events. I've like been on a lot of other podcasts mm-hmm. to talk about either religion in the Black experience, Mormonism and the Black experience, um, Black activism in general, or some kind of combination of the three and what role theology plays in that. So that has just been very rewarding work for me to basically provide a theological lens and in more specifically a Mormon theological lens to black liberation. And uh, that's more or less what the focus of my study is currently. And I just feel like I need to be a better theologian for that. Hence why I'm going to, of all places, Union Theological Seminary. That is the birthplace of black liberation theology, the birthplace of womanist theology. Uh, Pretty much all the professors or all the authors that I've read when I was first introduced to this work, all of them came through Union at one point, including, you know, my advisor and the dean of the school. So it just seemed like Union was the perfect or at least the closest thing to the institutional expression of my Black Christian prophetic identity. So it just seems like a good time and a good place for me to be at school and also be involved in this work. And, uh, you know, all of that has more or less led me to this position where I am with you. Like, uh, because of work I did on Beyond the Block, I got invited to speak at the Black LDS Legacy Conference, their fourth annual one. I gave a keynote address there that caught Deseret Book's attention. And they, you know, reached out to me. And that's more or less where we pick up the story of my life. 
Okay, so I have so many questions about various parts. I'm just going to pepper you with small questions about uh, yeah, different things that you touched over. So being able to work in acapella for six years, yeah. what, what, what does that look like? Are you part of a touring <laughs> group that traveled the, the country? Yeah, that's basically it. Um, I was a part of two different groups. And, you know, I substitute sung for a couple of other ones, but I was part of two groups mainly. One was based out of Boston. Another was based out of New York. And uh, yeah, I toured the country. And uh, the first group I sang with, you know, I was still in my mid-20s at the time. And we were touring like 200 to 250 days out of the year <laughs> where I was just not at home. <laughs> and uh, that was wild. Like I tell people, I, I spent pretty much a little more than a third of my twenties on the road. And, uh, that was just, that was a lot. I, I enjoyed it. You know, sure. don't get me wrong. It was very fulfilling work. I got to make music for a living and that's something a lot of people try to do and don't get to do. I, with very little experience trying to make music work professionally, I got into it, into it almost immediately just by being in the right place at the right time, having the right skill set. Yeah. So I feel very fortunate. But to, to answer your question, yeah, you're just on a bus all the time, going to different venues and, uh, you know, performing at those venues. So it's a, it's a good time. It's a fun time. It's rewarding. But like I said, a little, a little tough on the body when you get a little older. And also when you kind of come to the realization that there is a cap to your success in certain spaces. And that's ultimately what led to me uh, leaving the world of music was I was still at the end of the day working for somebody else. And so long as I couldn't do what I wanted to do, I was going to have a certain salary and a certain, um, you know, lifestyle or a certain fulfillment yeah. for the rest of my life. And I didn't, I, I didn't want to be, you know, making less than, you know, making very basic money or making less than what an Uber driver makes in my mid thirties. Sure. Like sure. I didn't want that. So sure. There's a time and a season for things where you go, this was great for what it yeah. was. Yeah. And now this is done and you move it to something. I want to dial the clock back a little bit more. Uh, mm -hmm. I have had the opportunity, but not as frequently as I'd like um, to talk with uh, individuals of color attend who attended BYU and, and, <laughs> and be able to know about that experience from, yeah. from, from what I gather it, it can be unique would be a gentle way to say that. Um, but, but I've also heard references to lonely, um, disenfranchising. Tell me what your experience was like. I mean, I felt all those things at different points, uh, for sure. Like, uh, I, I speak mostly positively of my experience at BYU, particularly, particularly the time I spent at BYU after my mission. Um, I just felt Where like did I you was... Serve? I served in South Africa. Okay. Yeah. South Africa, Cape Town mission. Cool. Um, but yeah, after my mission, I was pretty busy, like with school and stuff. I was a, uh, I was a TA for a couple of psychology classes and, you know, that more or less kept my mind off things and kept me busy with good things. Mm -hmm. Um, but like before my mission, it was a little bit of a struggle and it had felt lonely. Like I remember some specific times where, um, you know, I just straight up did not feel seen. Um, I, I, I remember the first time anybody tried discussing things like the priesthood ban or race in the priesthood in Sunday school and me being the only black face in the room, having to listen to people say myths about why the priesthood ban was instituted just, you know, made me feel away. 
<laughs> and also just how people are culturally, like racism or at the very least ignorance of how words or actions affect people that look like me. That was just very prevalent. Like uh, a story broke within the last few years of uh, BYU students, uh, black BYU students in particular, complaining about Confederate flags in people's windows. And I'm just like, oh, that was a Tuesday for me when I was at BYU. You know what I'm yeah. saying? And you know, granted, I wasn't as a, I wasn't as socially conscious back then as I am today, but like you come across things all the time that just reminds you that you're other, you know, people are surprised. We're regularly surprised at my intelligence or my behavior or mm-hmm. my healthy relationship boundaries, like stuff like that just seemed very random to me, but I did notice a pattern in time that, Oh, this stuff happened because of uh, my race. So yeah, it, it could get very lonely at times. Again, I had a mostly positive experience, but um, certainly I've had uh, some isolating experiences, a couple of blatantly racist experiences, but thankfully those were those were at a minimum. Yeah. I think about, you know, my youthfulness and I don't know how you, how old you are. I think I'm probably a couple of years older than you, but I can just remember things that I said out of ignorance, not out of blatant mm-hmm. racism, but right. out of ignorance or because I had heard someone else say it and went, Oh, okay. Well, this, this is what we say when, mm-hmm. you know, this topic is, is brought up a- and to think of it now and, and just be like, Oh man, yeah, yeah. <laughs> if I could just, you know, reach back. And and again, I think it's where it becomes such a sensitive thing to folks uh, where people don't want to have conversations is because they likely are ignorant. We are a mostly, at least in the United States, a mostly white church. Yeah. And so to have these discussions, man, it, as much as we fear saying the wrong thing, it keeps us so silent about being able to allow ourselves to be informed about certainly things. certainly yeah. yes sir it, it, it's one of the biggest struggles I, I i think that the church has currently is an ability to be able to talk about that and why i think what you had had uh you know introduced been approached by uh with deseret book to be able to to share to instruct to share some of that knowledge and insider experience that you have um it's why I think that that was so valuable. But I want to take a break real quick, and I want to come back, and I want to talk about what that program is that Desiree Book is trying to do, uh, and and how you uh, particularly were approached about it, and what you hope to gain from it. We'll talk all about it. Come back awesome. in the second block of the Cultural Hall. In addition to recording this here show and putting it out week over week over week, I've been doing this for over 11 years now, and it has become part of my life that I will teach others how to do the same. Now, not necessarily the same as the cultural hall, but if you are interested in doing a podcast, you've thought, oh man, you know what? I've got this great idea. Uh, I do help folks in a couple different ways. Uh, one is I teach a class. It's got curriculum and assignments and the whole deal uh, that I can be able to help you walk through through as you are looking to start a podcast, uh, or if you're looking for someone to help edit, help uh, produce, help uh, you know consult on a weekly basis with your podcast, you can also reach out to me. And the best way probably, honestly, to do that is if you find me, Richie T. Stedman, on any social media, that is a great way, or you can always just email us, contact at theculturalhall.com. Would love to help you out. Would love to talk to you about your idea. Would love to see if it would be something that uh, we could put into to, uh, 
with emotion. Let's do it. I almost said put into practice. That doesn't make sense. Uh, send me an email, contact at theculturalhall.com. Imagine running a small business today. It's challenging. Imaging and internet presence is an absolute must. Even with that, you're still a small star in a bright cyber universe. Now, imagine you have someone who understands how to get your site designed for your talents and then easily searched by potential clients. Imagine Lennon Design. Whether it's strictly a website or a whole package of logo creation, advertising media, and promotional materials, Lennon Design is your partner in business. They'll test the boundaries of their imagination to create something unique for you. When you need creative, affordable design, let it be Lennon Design. Call 801-699-3022 or visit LennonDesign.com. Here in the second block of the Cultural Hall, if you are not yet a Patreon saint of the Cultural Hall, I would hope that you would go and do that. Go to Patreon.com forward slash The Cultural Hall. There are three tiers, a $5, a $10, and a $25 tier. Uh, When you pledge money, it makes me think, oh, you like what we do here, and it makes me want to continue to do it. When you don't pledge money, I cry. And my wife says, what are you doing this for? And I say, for love, for dedication, but not for money because people aren't pledging. I know that seemed heavy handed. I didn't mean for it to go that heavy. Uh, Patreon.com forward slash The Cultural Hall gets you access to our first 300 episodes, which are very hard to access. Otherwise, also gets you to be a part of that secret but not sacred Facebook group. Uh, and there are over 100 people there hanging out, having a great time, and talking tangentially about what they love about each of these episodes, or actually about the episodes themselves. Patreon.com forward slash The Cultural Hall. So James, uh, talk to me a little bit about how you get approached uh, from Deseret Book, and what this program is. I think a lot of people don't even know what this this program that you were approached to, to be a part of even is. Yeah, yeah, so... Honestly, they slid into my DMs. Like, that's what happened. Uh Um, The content manager for the Seek platform, what they call it, uh, they straight up slid into my DMs, Mm -hmm. asked to talk on the phone about what they were doing, told me that they heard me speak at the Black LDS Legacy Conference and felt like I could uh, offer them something at a Deseret Book for for their platform. So that was basically the genesis of this whole thing was that conversation on Instagram. Then we were talking on the phone. Uh, we proposed uh, some ideas for what the class would be. And then things just kind of went from there. So if people are, uh, if that doesn't give people a, a kind of a good tangible explanation, as I understand it, it's yes. it's sort of like um, this master class that you see kind of uh, advertised on Facebook a bunch or like these these different, um, you can sit down, you pay a particular fee, and then you can be able to get all of this material about a particular subject. That is exactly right. Yeah. Like that's basically what Seek is. So so when you um, started to talk to them on the phone about it, uh, I, I guess from the very beginning, were you, were you a little surprised? Like, hey, this is something that the church was open to even talking about? I'm <laughs> yeah, I was very surprised that they reached out to me at all because uh, my honestly, my first thought was, "Have you met me? Like, <laughs> do you do you know what it is that I do, and do you think that is compatible with your brand?" Um, that was like the first question out of my mouth. Like, is what I do, who I am, okay? Like, I have this podcast centering the marginalized in Mormonism. We occasionally are critical of policy and the brethren like are you um 
And also I was like, do I get to say what I want to say? Because I had heard before that they have sanitized creators and they had sanitized black creators. And I was just like, I don't want that to be done to me. Like, I don't want to work if like you're not cool with who I am as a person, who I am as a content creator, or if like you plan on sanitizing or deodorizing me at all. So yeah, I was very surprised that they acknowledged those things and still let me work with them. Which I think is, uh, I mean, some people may hear that and think it's a little bit maybe abrasive or something, but I, I think, you know, we, I'm a content creator as well. Yeah. I know who I am. I know yeah. what I stand for. And, mm-hmm. and, and it's not a thing like where it's like, and you have to be okay with it. But there are lots of times where I interact with folks and I go, you know what may not be a great fit is me with you. That may not yeah. be a thing that works. And so, yeah. you know, when you're saying, do you know who I am and all that, I want to make sure that people recognize it's not like you're like, I hate this or <laughs> I'm bombastic or anything like that. Yeah. But, you know, James is a certain brand. Richie yeah. is a certain brand. And, yeah. and, and that, you know, those things don't mix necessarily with all things. So I appreciate that you were able to have a forthright conversation with them uh, about that. And they said, obviously, they said, yeah, let's do it. Yeah, let's do it. Like we got into it. And, you know, I reflect on that moment and I'm just like, I'm not, I'm honestly not sure anymore if they actually did their homework. But even if they did, like my content is like mostly, it's mostly faith affirming. It's overwhelmingly faith affirming. So it's like, not like I don't think they did their homework. It's just that like, I feel if they've listened to our episodes, they would know that, you know, on occasion, like if I feel it's necessary, I will say something that might rub some people the wrong way with regard to policy or with regard to, you know, the words the brethren say at general conference. That's usually where I'm at my most critical is uh, in those moments. So uh, before we get into that, and I want to make sure that you hold me accountable that I ask you about maybe some of that critical speak yeah. about it. Um, what was the content of your of your Sikh class? Ironically enough, the uh, title of the seat class was Abandoning Attitudes and Actions of Prejudice. That was the title of the course. And it was a mostly, basically a anti-racism 101 from a Mormon theological perspective. That's what the course was going to be. That's, I mean, that's what it was. The course is done and that's what it is. So uh, that, yeah, that's it. So, so walk this out, that out a little bit, because I think you're very acquainted with it. I would hope that I would be acquainted with that, but I think mm-hmm. that there is something on that one-on-one level that someone who is listening to this could take value and go, well, I'm not racist, or you know, I don't <laughs> carry any of these kind of things. And then yeah. as you address some of these things, they go, oh, I did that. Oh, I still <laughs> think that. Oh, shoot, what am I missing? Why, why is that? A microaggression, or why is that even racist? And so let's talk maybe about some of those particular things that might have come up in that lesson. Certainly. And I'll, you know, give you a little bit of it for free. But like one of them is a thing as simple as what exactly is racism? You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Um, people, I, I spend a decent amount of time on social media. So I see how people talk about race whenever issues of race in this country arise. And what's troubling to Note is that in too many of these uh, conversations, productive dialogue can't be had because so much energy is devoted to arguing about what racism even is. And, you know, two cannot walk together except they be agreed. Amos 3.3. Amen. So if we're going to fight against racism, we should probably 
know what it is and what it looks like. It would also be helpful to know what the scriptures have to say about it, to reinforce correct ideas about how we treat those who are different from us. And, you know, once we have that much, then we can have productive dialogue about uh, how to address how to address racism. So I go over the popular definition of racism, which basically amounts to any prejudice against someone based on race. And, you know, that definition is technically correct, but it's also incomplete. It doesn't adequately define the problem that the church wants to address. Like when President Nelson got up in general conference October 2020 and lamented the state that black people are in, he was talking about a specific kind of prejudice, a specific kind of racism. He was talking specifically about anti-black racism and racial prejudice, racial prejudice, which is what most people think of when they hear racism, that doesn't affect every race equally. It's one of the reasons that President Nelson spoke about that stuff. Anti-Black racial prejudice, for example, is sustained and validated by institutions through things like mass incarceration, redlining, police brutality. If people don't know what redlining is. Oh, my bad. Housing discrimination. Okay. That's basically. Yeah, I just want to make sure that within any of the terms that we make sure that that people are able to, to follow along with it. Yeah, basically housing discrimination, you know, so that's in the modern era in the Jim Crow era. It was uh, sustained and validated through segregation. And before the Jim Crow era, it was validated through black codes and slavery. So anti-white prejudice, on the other hand, was never validated on that scale, never codified in our institutions, nor has any disparity reflecting discrimination against white individuals been evident in those same institutions. So this is why the phrase uh, white supremacy, for example, or racism is used interchangeably because that kind of institutional discrimination is a fruit of white supremacy. So mm-hmm. therefore, a more complete definition of racism would be any prejudice against someone based on race that is reinforced by systems of power. And um, Merriam-Webster, I think, they also give a similar definition and take things a little bit further. Uh, they say the systemic oppression of a racial group to the social, economic, and political advantage of another. So this is what we're talking about when we talk about racism and the and the racism we want to address. It's a kind of racism that isn't necessarily omnidirectional and personal, where it affects all races equally. It's unidirectional and it's, you know, favoring, I mean, it's unidirectional and favoring one at the expense of, uh, of another. That's That's one of the things that I talk about in the course. And so being able to start at that very definition and then being able to walk out, so I would imagine probably some of the ways where people might be surprised that their actions would be interpreted as at, at most racist, at, at mm-hmm. minimal, maybe a microaggression uh, yeah. t- towards black people. It, it is, um, do you think that giving those various examples still benefits in this day? Or do we know what we do and we just choose to not change our behavior. Sorry, I'm not quite sure I understand the question. I mean, so so much when we talk about race, it, it's it's either a blatant choice of what we are continuing to Correct. do, or yeah. I think so much within the church, it's just an ignorant, we don't know that these words have these meanings, or that, that um, you know, this comparison or this tradition, mm-hmm. uh, like we don't know the harm that, the words that we use cause. Got you. 
so it so then it sem- it stems to me to believe that like walking out some of those things that I would never consider this as a as a white privileged person that mm-hmm. this would be you know some sort of even microaggression but yeah. to a person of color they're like do you understand how offensive that is yeah to me I I guess I guess maybe best demonstrated can you give me an example of something like which I speak where I would think there's nothing to this and it would be something that would be harmful yeah, a classic one is calling a black person articulate. Are okay. you familiar with this? Uh, I, I uh, as I remember when uh, President Obama um, was um, first starting out on the uh, on the uh, uh, you know on the campaign, and mm-hmm. people were like, "He's very articulate." Yeah, and and yeah. yeah, basically what? So black people can't be articulate. <laughs> it's stuff like yeah, it's stuff like that, and you know. That's a very common experience among black people is receiving that sort of black hand backhanded compliment. Mm-hmm. It's like so common that even like a lot of white folks know better than to do that. Like calling a black person articulate is uh, confirming the expectation and the presu- and the pres- that the presumption of intelligence was not present as it may have been had you been talking to somebody who was white mm. when a. A uh, black person in particular just demonstrates a, a robust vocabulary or an ability to express themselves. That's not something that white people are conditioned to view. And this is where it gets harmful. The people that hold ideas about the intelligence of black people, like whether or not it's that most of us aren't articulate or that, you know, some of us are have rowdy children. Like the, the thing the thing is, is these things that seem relatively harmless about how we view black folks, like the people that hold those views, they become teachers of our children. They become Mm -hmm. ecclesiastical stewards of church. They become police officers in our neighborhoods. They become uh, bishops in our churches and they are in positions of authority where they make decisions based on those ideas that they are conditioned to have. So like, these are things like the intelligence of black people, the violence or the anger of black people, um, the capacity of black people to succeed and work. And like the, our, our, our work ethic is also attacked and stuff like that. I'm like, this is just all to say that there's all these ideas that we are conditioned to believe about the black race, that when they turn up in inevitably in institutions, like we shouldn't be shocked that it happens. Like we shouldn't be shocked that so many black people are overrepresented in our prison systems or that so many black people don't make it to higher education or that the proportion of remedial students in elementary school or in K through 12 schools is overwhelmingly black. Just these are the kinds of ideas that affect in positions of power the quality of life of black folks. So this is what I'm talking about with these microaggressions, like obviously on a personal level, not a ton of harm when a white person calls me articulate. But when that white person is a teacher or a school administrator, their ideas about black intelligence may put a kid in remediation who doesn't need to be in remediation. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so, uh, someone listening to that and going, oh, geez, I, I might have been prone to say articulate or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. Because of, you know, the nurture of which that person came up, the privilege, mm-hmm. the system, the, the whatever. That's a very specific example. And I think people can, you know, lock that away in the back of their head. All right, don't don't mention the articulate nature of a, of a black individual, right? I mean, almost we yeah. sort of do that in, in a way, yeah. but like if, if we just want to check ourselves in a much grander way, like how do we, how do we, how do we know what we don't know? 
And that's where we get to the course. Um, yeah, yeah. Like, I don't want, I don't want to give too much of it sure. away, but sure. like in, um, in one of the, like the, there's a model that I use for the course uh, called the, uh, the uh, head heart hand model. I forget who originally pioneered it, but um, Jamar Tisby is actually the person who's credited with bringing it into anti-racist spaces. And the idea is basically head, which is acquire knowledge, mm-hmm. heart, which is build relationships, and then hands, which is commit to action. I talk about one way that people can do this is by building relationships to answer your question. Yeah. Uh, you don't know what you don't know if you don't spend time with or have associations with people actually in the black community. And, you know, a lot of white folks, frankly, just don't have any close associations with black people. And, you know, it just is what it is. Like mm-hmm. when you are 60% of the population, black people are only about 13% and neighborhoods are already segregated anyway, our church even more so. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't expect a lot of white people in the church to get it or to have a lot of associations with black folks, at least black folks that make them quote unquote comfortable, you know? (laughs) Um, So you figure out what you don't know in part by willingly going into spaces that don't center people that look like you. Mm. Um, So that's, that's just one thing. If you want to figure out what you don't know, like, yeah, you can read books. Like that is certainly very helpful being proactive about your learning. Like I talk about that in the course um, and that's a big deal. Yeah. I also believe, though, and know that you are far more likely to take the um, take and heed the call of President Nelson more seriously when you know somebody that is directly affected by these things. Um, I do something with uh, people called a racial autobiography exercise where um, we basically journal about um, their experience with race. Hmm. And I remember going over one of the exercises of one of the people I gave it to. And she basically talked about how her view or her decision to take on the issue of racism became much more serious when she adopted two black children. Mm-hmm. And they were both teenagers. Like, I can't imagine as a like being a white parent and suddenly having two black chi- teenagers in your house like that is going to be a jarring experience socially, the things that you have to be careful of in public, the things you're going to deal with at their schools, um, trying to interact with other people that have authority over them. Like that is just a horribly jarring thing. Thankfully, she's taking it in stride now. But like that was all it took for her to know that she had to take the uh, call for racism a lot more seriously. I wish it didn't take a relationship for people to do that. But often that is usually the make or breaker for whether or not people take this fight seriously or not? Do they know somebody who is directly affected by this stuff? Yeah. You know, when I hear you talk about that, and and I appreciate that you've been so giving of the information that's contained within the course, and I do want to get back into the narrative of of what all went in with um, Deseret Book, but uh, a couple of things come to to my mind as we've been talking. Um, One is, I can't remember who the individual was that I was interviewing, but it was for my day job where um, they talked about, think of the people, the five people that are closest to you, your five closest friends, not family, but friends, and ask yourself, you know, are they the same race as you? Are they, same, are they the same sexuality as you? Just like go through it. And most people will find that those five people are the exact same as them. And those are mm-hmm. the five people that most likely influence their life. And so the challenge then became to, you know, to add some, some uh, variation into that. Um, that being said, 
you know, I live in Utah. I'm not sure. And one of the questions I wanted to pepper you with, where is Union? Where is that that you're studying? New York City. New York City. It's on okay. Columbia's campus. Oh, cool. Very yeah. cool. What a gorgeous place. But uh, you have the opportunity to uh, integrate with lots of people of various nationalities, colors, etc., far more than I do. I would have to be very intentional here in the state of Utah. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to downplay it. I could be way more intentional than I have been. But I would have to be very intentional to be to be like, hello, black person. I want to know more about your experience. <laughs> and I think for some, I think for some that that becomes very uncomfortable, whether that's the person seeking out the person or the person being sought out. When it, it I have the truest of intentions to do so. I just want to understand. Mm-hmm. I just want to know more. But but I think that that kind of relationship can be sort of off-putting. But I don't know that I have that opportunity unless I deliberately go for it more than I would regularly do. Right. And you might have to, just like the process of getting to know people. I always tell people to start it with your immediate associations, people you know at work, at church, otherwise in your circles. And, you know, if you don't have those, you definitely got to be more proactive about it. Um, I love telling white dudes to go into black barbershops. It's one of the... (laughs) funnest places like there's this regular joke in the black community we don't we don't have mental health therapists we have barbers you know (laughs) Uh, that's where we go for so much of our uh, you know our mental debriefing and you know undressing and also they know how to do your hair you can like easily uh, gauge the pulse and you know I'm not going to say this universally but like if you are able to have a conversation with a black barber or just you know a black barbershop like up in Salt Lake City one of my favorite places to go is Flex Cuts And um, I just thoroughly enjoyed myself there. But this is all a long way of saying, yeah, go got to be intentional in terms of figuring out where to go, Um, getting your hair done someplace, uh, getting a gym at a membership at a community center as opposed to a private one, going to these um, these cultural festivals that they always have at colleges and universities and big cities. Um, You know, those are just a couple of ideas, but you are totally right about being intentional because, you know, without that, it's, you know, hard to build your associations. Yeah. And I know that we've, we've talked uh, several times, both with news stories and with individuals who've had the opportunity to worship, but I know um, we're fortunate in the state of Utah and sort of, you mentioned with air quotes, the sort of comfortable uh, introduction with Black Latter-day Saints, the Genesis uh, group Mm -hmm. is a great place. Um, I know for people that listen in the state of Utah to be able to to meet other Black Latter-day Saints and be able to worship with them. Uh, I totally I think forgot that, about them, but yeah, you're totally right. <laughs> that could be a, a great onboard for those that they hear something like this, they live in the state of Utah, and they want to. Boy, they genuinely mm-hmm. want to, but just don't know how to take that first step. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to take a break. We come back in the third block. We're going to pick it up with uh, where things went askew, maybe we say, with the folks <laughs> over at Deseret Book. They slid yeah. into the DMs after all, yeah. uh, but yeah. we'll pick that up coming back in the third block of the cultural hall hey friends dan the laptop man here from pc laptops and as you know there's been this humongous video card shortage in fact there's been a huge electronic component shortage but no need to worry at pc laptops we just got in shiploads of nvidia and amd video cards we have them in stock right now and they're available with all new PC laptops, desktop computer systems. All of our desktops are backed with a lifetime parts and labor warranty. That means if your video card blows up in 10 years, you're covered 100%. Now you can get our cutting edge PCs for as low as $29 a month. And we also have 12 month special financing. 
hurry into PC laptops right now and grab a desktop computer with an NVIDIA or AMD video card because at PC Laptops, we really love you. PCLaptops.com. That's PCLaptops.com. Here in the third block of the Cultural Hall, if you have not yet left a review, I encourage you to do so. You can do it now on Spotify. They opened that up. You can say, oh, I love James. He's the greatest. I'm going to go check out Beyond the Block. And then they'll go check out Beyond the Block, and they'll leave a review there. Point is, you can leave reviews now on Spotify, and you could always do it on Apple. So no matter where you're listening, I think that you can at least leave some stars, if not some words that compliment us. If you don't like this episode, keep it to yourself. No one needs that negative energy. Just keep that right inside. Keep that right inside. Now, you can leave a negative review if you like. I don't encourage it, but go ahead and leave us a review. We'd love it. James, they uh, said, yeah, let's do it. You can do it how you want to do it. Let's go forth. Uh, Tell me, what did that look like? Was that you coming to Utah and filming, or were you filming wherever you were at? How did did that all work? Yeah, they uh, flew me out to Utah, and they, you know, even rented an Airbnb for for the set which I was, uh, you know, really impressed by. They clearly had high expectations of, uh, you know, my being there. And, you know, I had also been in regular contact with them about the content of the course. Like I, I had written out word for word what I had planned to say, and I had been sending them each one of my drafts because like I, di- I didn't want there to be any, you know, confusion about what I was going to say or any issues with what I was going to say. I, and I also think it speaks to the credit of your character. Like, you're not trying to be sneaky. You're saying... I'm really not. This is what I'm doing. Yeah. This is me. Yeah. And I also, like, didn't want what's happening now to happen. You know what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm. I'm just like, if anything is going to be a problem at any point, you know, terminate this relationship. I, I don't want to cause anybody trouble. I just want to be as forthcoming as I can be about, you know, who I am as a person and what I value. But, um, yeah. I went out to Utah. They, um, we filmed the course. It was very quick. Like we did the whole thing in about three hours. They told me it was the quickest class they filmed because, you know, (laughs) I was just that ready. And, uh, they even told me it was probably going to be one of their more popular courses, if not their most popular one, like eyes were getting watery on the set. You know what I'm saying? Just what I was doing mattered. And I felt like, I felt great about that. Like I was so, this is, this is why I wanted to do this because I wanted people to see how gospel centered that this fight was, that this call that the prophet made to abandon attitudes and actions of prejudice. I did the best I could to let people know that this was honoring our covenants. And I bore testimony of just how much this is honoring our covenants, our responsibility to do this, and just how this would make us the church that we were meant to become. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. I, I said it, and like I meant every word of it. Like I still do. You know what I'm saying? Just mm-hmm. I, I feel like I did my job. You know what I'm saying? So that was that. Um, and then true to Deseret Book's word, they they got me the content that summer because, you know, they finished editing it and everything. And they even let me know in the email, James, as you wished, as you stated, we didn't change a thing. And I watched it and I was like, they really didn't change a thing. Pause real like, quick. Timeline yeah. on this. When is this? Is this this last summer or six months ago or are we talking a yeah. year or six? Okay. okay. Yeah. So all of this started back in like February of... 20 yeah this year 2021 this started so when i say summer summer of this year okay um so that was summer 
Now, something else on the timeline. August 23rd, I believe, 2021, Elder Holland gives that speech at BYU for, you know, Education Week or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, for the most part, his talk was fine. I took issue with his comments about the LGBTQ community. And, you know, I posted on Facebook that to uh, condemn the authentic expression of queer identity in the name of Christ, I used the word satanic to describe that behavior. That's what I did. I put that in a public Facebook post and that got around. I also described the brethren as overwhelmingly, uh, you know, the general authorities in general, I described them as an overwhelmingly white group of uh, homophobic dudes born in the Jim Crow era. And they also quoted that as something they didn't particularly particularly uh, like. But anyway, that was August. That's what I did in August. And that's what Elder Holland did in August. Now, when I found out Deseret Book had a problem with this, October rolls by. That's when the class is supposed to come out. It doesn't come back. and It doesn't come out. And I haven't heard a thing from Deseret Book. I finally hear something back December 1st. And that's when I get the note from the content manager. Oh, hey, um, some things you said on the internet rubbed people the wrong way. And now we're going to have to delay your course till spring of next year, late spring of next year. And they didn't tell me what it was. They didn't tell me what I had said that was wrong. So they didn't say it was the August comments. They just said some things that you said. Correct. Correct. At at that point then, are you racking your brain going, well, what might have I have said? Or was it pretty clear in your mind that you went, oh, it's I actually didn't know. I actually didn't know because, you know, I'd be saying a lot of things. So I'm just (laughs) like, what exactly did they hear? And where did they hear it? Was it on the podcast? What was it on the internet? Like, I don't, I don't know. Um, But um, so I wrote back and, you know, told her bad idea. Don't do that. Like, you can see it in the correspondence that I include, but that's basically what I said. Bad idea. Don't do that. And then the content manager emailed me back and was like, okay, can we talk about this? And we talk about it. You know what happens on that call, Richie? Hmm. They cry for 10 minutes and basically tell me, talk to my boss. Hmm. Talk to my boss through tears for 10 minutes. That was basically the entire conversation. And then, like, also, I got a note in uh, this whole conversation I was, I was specific about how I wanted to use my time. I said, I don't want to talk to your boss unless their mind can be changed. I don't want to talk to their boss unless I'll be heard. I don't want to talk to the boss like if this isn't going to go anywhere. Like, don't waste my time. Right. So sure enough, um, you know, we get past that part. And then the boss contacts me. And then we have our correspondence. And the boss, that was the worst interaction of this whole thing. Mm-hmm. Like, they just were not hearing me and just were ignoring me using terrible arguments. And then when I finally get past that last email where it became clear that we were at an impasse and they weren't going to tell me anything, this is also the point where they finally tell me what I did specifically that caused them to make their decision. Um, I realized they're not going to hear me. And then I end with one more question. Okay. Tell me exactly how our collaboration interferes or compromises with Deseret Books mission because you have not made that clear to me at all. They told me a couple of different things. They told me we're uncomfortable with your word choice. And they told me, on the other hand, you can't criticize the brethren. And I'm not exactly sure what it is. Like, is it that I criticize the brethren? Is it 
my word choice? Like, what is it? And why didn't you tell me back in August? Like, we could have done something about this. Like, you don't do your other creators like this. You know what I'm saying? Mm. Like, what they do something wrong, they tell them and they give them an opportunity to fix it. I was not given that luxury. I was not mm. given that courtesy, rather. So, like, I'm feeling a way about this already. And then when they just straight up stopped responding to my email, um, you know, requesting specifically what I did, you know, we're at the we're at about the week and a half mark as of this moment. And I'm just like, all right, bet you don't want to talk to me. Let's go. Mm. And that's when I wrote the piece on Medium and just spilled all my feelings about it and, you know, shared my correspondence and told people how I felt and what was going what I felt uh, Deseret Book was doing and why they were making a big mistake. So that's that leads us to today. Now, you mentioned that you felt like it was very particular that the treatment that you were getting is different than any other creator as part of this group. What, what draws you to f- feel that? Is there anything in particular that... I've, talk, I've talked to other creators. Okay. Yeah. So um, that, that was it, really. And just like so many things just weren't adding up. Why didn't they talk to me sooner? Why weren't they in communication? Why didn't the president know? about this stuff because like apparently people were not communicating with each other over a Deseret book Mm. my medium article dropping was the first the president of Deseret book who directed them to reach out to me in the first place that was the first they were hearing about this whole situation that I was having in in their communication so they're not talking to each other over there Mm. and you know they're not being totally honest with me about what's going on even today I'm going to tell you something that the general public doesn't know yet um within 24 hours of the medium piece dropping, the president of Deseret Book sent me an email and was like, yo, can we talk? And I'm just like, my terms are the same as they were with your previous subordinates. Don't waste my time. And don't, I don't want to talk if, you know, things can't move forward. So like, I'm literally about two years, two, not two years, two <laughs> hours off of that call, oh, like wow. where I spoke with uh, the president with, you know, a couple other people as witnesses, because, you know, the don't talk to like black people as in general, especially in this church, we don't talk to anybody alone because, yeah. you know, things can go south very quickly if that happens. But um, we spoke and they want to reconcile. They still want to roll with the course. You know, they still want to use it. And, um, you know, that I thought was extremely surprising. I thought I'd kind of burn that bridge with the medium article. But at the same time, I was like, OK, if you want to still use it, you know, these are my terms. This is what I need from you guys. You need to show me some good faith. And, um, you know, what can you do for me? Like, what, what, can, what can we do? And what do you need from me? Be specific about the parameters I have to operate in so I can tell you whether or not I can do it. Because, like, this, it shouldn't have taken this for you to tell me no. Right. Like, I should have been told no from the get-go if this is how things were going to go. But, like, we, re- we literally did all this work. I had the same conversation with two of your subordinates and you're trying to have the same conversation with me now. Like, what are the parameters? What is, like, what's, what's happening? Like, that's basically where we're at right now. Now, at this point, the president of uh, Deseret Book, you know, they have power, t- they only have power to flip the switch at this particular moment. Like, they could flip the switch but then they would have to answer for flipping that switch to the people above them. Sure. And uh, if the Deseret Book president goes rogue and pushes my content anyway, and you know I do believe that they're on my side, which I really appreciate, but uh, they could lose their job 
And then my content would get pushed down anyway. And we don't want that either. So we're, we're in a tricky spot and I'm really trying to appreciate the position that they're in currently. Um, but at the same time, you know, this opens up a whole nother conversation of what it is to be critical of the brethren, what is required of content creators, um, how we're supposed to operate with content creators, what kind of freedom we're, we're allowed to give them, all this other stuff. Because like, I'm not going to lie to you. When I was having these conversations and still not being able to narrow down what exactly their parameters were, I'm just like, is this Scientology now? Like, what are we yeah. doing out here? Mm -hmm. You know, just this feels way too constrictive. And for who I am as a member of the church, like I tick off every Mormon box of respectability. I served a mission. I went to BYU. I'm active in my ward. I'm at bishopric meetings every Sunday. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Just mm -hmm. I'm out here. And like, why doesn't this give me and, and my content, my content on beyond the block is, mo is very faith affirming. It keeps people in the church. Yeah. What do I have to do to earn the right to critique the doctrine that I follow? What do I have to do to earn the right to critique the brethren? Like, why don't I get to do that? Like, why is that being policed? Hmm. Just that doesn't make sense. Sorry, I'm ranting now, but no, like, no, this no, is no. basically where I'm at at this point is we, we ride people's cases who are outside of the church. Be like, oh, people outside the church, they can't criticize us. They don't know what it's like. Sure. They're not or, part of the church. Or they're speaking from a, from a place that maybe they were in the church and, oh, they're just jaded because they were in right. and now they're out. Right. They'll do anything they can to harm the right. church. Yeah. And like, I'm very in the church. I literally just renewed my temple recommend two weeks ago. Just like, why am I not allowed mm. to do this? Why don't I get a say? Why can't I, as a faithful member of the church, say what I want to say, because nothing I said was mean-spirited. I didn't say it with a tone of contempt. <laughs> like, were the words I used strong? Were they harsh? Absolutely. I will own up to that all day. But like, was the, <sighs> that shouldn't have been a problem, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Can I ask you something? Do you have Certainly. any sort of regret about either of the words by either satanic or homophobic in retrospect? Hell no. no, absolutely not. Absolutely not. I'd say them again. Absolutely not. Like, again, strong words, harsh words. I own that. And, you know, I got a robust vocabulary. All they could have done, all they needed to do was call me up and be like, hey, strong words. Can you switch that up? Yeah. And I'll be like, absolutely. I can do that for you. If I'm still allowed to say and preserve the spirit of what I meant to say, then absolutely. You don't like the word satanic? I can change it. But I got no regrets about it. Yeah. The word was accurate. Definitionally accurate. White, heteron, white, homophobic, um, over born in the Jim Crow era, accurate. None of it mean-spirited. So like, no, no regrets. How do you feel knowing that they're going to further and, and one day, um, you know, publish this content? How do you feel about that? I don't know that they're going to, honestly. Um, I'm waiting till January 10th. That's when I'm going to hear from them next about what's going up. Like after the results of today's conversation, um, you know, we still hadn't come to a resolution, but we did come with a plan of action. The president is going to have to go up, talk mm -hmm. to Sherry Dew, talk mm -hmm. to some of the brethren, mm -hmm. bring whatever black people on the board they can to like provide their perspective or their opinions or whatever, and uh, hopefully figure out if we can just let my course go forward. Now, that may not happen. And if it doesn't happen, I'm pretty confident that given everything that's happened, 
Deseret Book will just give me the content. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Just because, like, don't make me do this all over again. Right. You know? And also, all this mess y'all done drug me through, the lying, the running around, the not being transparent, not being forthcoming, not being consistent with the enforcing of these standards, you don't deserve the content, and I shouldn't have to do this again just because y'all messed up. They know they messed up. Deseret Book knows they messed up. One of the first things they did when I got on the call this morning, they apologized profusely for everything they should have apologized for. And I'm just like, I appreciate that. But you know, your apology, it has to be as loud, if not louder than your disrespect was. So what are you trying to do to fix this? And some action behind it. You know, the thing that the overwhelming thing um, from this conversation is twofold. One, that the the need for the content which you have produced mm-hmm. is is so very obvious. Yeah. Um, and then secondarily, um, that having the opportunity to be able to to consume it uh, on their end, that's not the issue that they have. Like this content, I, I don't want to say that it's pure, but it's without taint. It's not. That's not the issue, right? It's this not. thing that you have love that you have provided provided tears is necessary. Is conversations mm-hmm. that need to be had, mm-hmm. and you know, I I just hope that as um, you know as you continue to have that correspondence with them, uh, with the tenth of January. Uh, and, and ongoing beyond that, I hope for everything in the world that that it can be a collaboration between um, them and you, and that they can be able to speak to the things that they've done, and you can be able to speak to the things that you've done, and we can all stand by as as um, as witnesses to this was a thing. It happened. That was a messy thing, and people overcame it, and we were able to collaborate and move forward, and we can have that this, because one. that, to me, is is a lesson in and of itself beyond what your class would would teach us. And so, I, man, I, I, I think that that's, that, to me, is ripe for another thing of being transparent and saying, hey, here's what happened. Yeah, this is where we were coming from. Yeah, we were coming from. Can you imagine the power in something like that being transparent and being shared? And why I'm so grateful that you, that you have been willing to come and, and be able to share your perspective uh, on on everything that's occurred. And man, I can't wait to be able to consume that content and and be able to learn from you and and be able to maybe cry with you or, you know, feel inspired. And, and, and now I'm going to have to check out that barbershop because I'm, I'm going to be that deliberate, I think, to, to be like, what's up, guys? I'm here well, because know, yeah. I just want to be able to have this experience, and I don't think that I would otherwise. Um, All right. James, there uh, is a few questions that we ask everyone who steps into yeah. the cultural hall, and I want to ask them of you right now. The first question is, is, do you have a calling, and if so, what is it? I do have a calling. I'm the uh, executive secretary in my ward. If you could pick a calling for yourself, either one that exists or make one up, what would you pick? Goodness. Um, ooh, I don't even know. Um, a calling that, I, if I could pick a calling, shoot. I've honestly never thought about this. Um, or what I can, if I can make one up, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I really like uh, being part of the ward mission. I will say that, like uh, just being a ward missionary, like being one of the go-to people to like uh, have discussions or just be in somebody's uh, back pocket, especially in this uh, Harlem neighborhood. I I really like living here and I really like 
uh, being able to interact with, you know, the investigators out here. So I, I'd probably put, pick Ward Missionary. Our final question that we ask everyone, we ask you to interpret however you would like, but the question remains, what is your favorite part of your faith? <laughs> I love what the faith can do for people. Um, you know, people say all kinds of things and, you know, many of them I would agree with regarding the uh, shortcomings of the church's culture. And, you know, that's, that's a conversation. But uh, one of the reasons I'm at Union Theological Seminary is because I know the power of Mormonism's theology. I know what the gospel can do. I know what it can do to liberate people. I know what it can do to truly turn people's hearts to each other and create something. Like the whole reason I want to be here is because I want to magnify that message. I think it's a, such a shame that people don't know what, you know, our theology can do. Mm. The most, one of the most common compliments or messages that I get on Beyond the Block's Instagram is people regularly telling us, I never thought to look at the scripture that way. And I'm just like, of course you weren't. Yeah. You're not black or you're not queer. Why would you have to look at it this way? Like we have, and this is another reason why I really want this thing to work out with Deseret Book. People are so not aware of the liberatory power of the Book of Mormon, of Mormonism's theology, of like everything that this can do for people. You know what I'm saying? Just it's so rich. It's so uh, deep and like uh, enriching, liberating. And I'm mad. I'm genuinely mad that people don't know. I feel like if people knew we'd have a significantly different church, but they can't know because they're being, they're being taught the scriptures the same way by the same people. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the same lessons every year, we're he hearing the same talks at general conference. And, you know, there's something to be said for repetition. And sure. I want to make space for that. Certainly. But like one of the reasons that black Christians in particular are so resilient when it comes to Jesus and stuff is Jesus is a very real character in our lives. Like what I said at the end of my Facebook posts, we believe in a Jesus that overcame the most humiliating and brutal death at the hands of the most powerful men. That's literally black people in America. Hmm. We are people that are victims of actual lynchings. One of my favorite books is uh, the cross and the lynching tree by James Cone. And um, I, I tell him, I tell people that trying to understand Jesus from a white point of view is like trying to understand Jesus from the Roman point of view. You know, black folks were literally out here being lynched and our faith in our faith is in a Jesus who literally overcame an extrajudicial killing, a lynching through the resurrection. It was a holy middle finger to all institutions, oppressive institutions of power. That's the Jesus we believe in. And a lot of white people don't know that Jesus. They don't. And that to me is tragic. There is a disease of the white Christian social imagination. And until we can cure that disease, we can't bridge these gaps. I want people to know the Jesus that I know. And that's not going to happen without this work that I'm trying to do. That's not going to happen unless people can see what I see. And that's not going to happen unless we are a place where black people can come and feel safe. Yeah. So 
sorry, long answer to the question. What I love about my faith is the truly liberating, unifying power that is present in our theology. And I know, I don't believe that a lot of people know it, but I believe that they can. And this course, the main reason I wanted to do this course is so that people could begin to see that. Well said. Uh, you can find Beyond the Block wherever you're finding the Cultural Hall. I encourage you to check that out. If you like what you've heard with James today, you can check out him and his partner as they do that. Beyond the Block, uh, we, again, wherever you get your podcasts. Also, uh, James, where do people find you on social media? Yeah, um, at Jam C. John, J-A-M-C-J-O-N on both Instagram and Twitter. All right. Thanks for being here. We hope that this episode has nourished and strengthened your body, that if you're not healthy enough to listen this week, that you'll be healthy enough to listen next week, and that when the time comes, you'll be able to travel home in safety. In the meantime, Rick McGee, Debbie Wanless, Brother Brent, and Chocolate Cake Bites podcast will be saving a seat for you on the back row of the Cultural Hall. Save me a seat. It's sure to be neat. 